Newman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is the US entrepreneur and tech trailblazer, Phil Lieben. From capitalizing on the smartphone revolution as CEO of the software sensation Evernote to powering better productivity in the pandemic, Phil's is the story of someone who has followed his own path and he's forging a new road for the future of work with his venture. It's backed by his startup studio, All Turtles, which aims to break out of what he calls the narrow, overheated bubble that has built up in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And the journey continues. Phil was born in the USSR and is back in the USA, completing the story of arrivals and departures from Leningrad to the Bronx to Arkansas via a Silicon Valley unicorn. And it's perhaps for this reason that business author Tim Ferriss describes Phil as an awesome guy, hilarious, and just an amazing, amazing executive. Phil, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you, Michael. I hope you like the introduction because I felt that it summed up this incredible story of journeys in your life. It was entirely too generous, Michael. Well, starting back in the USSR, for those that remember that time, and it reminded me that you sent us one of your your quotes for life, which was from the um, the book, The Left Hand of Darkness, which is the, the complete futility of knowing the correct answer to the wrong question. Tell us a little bit about that in the context of your own life. Yeah, you know, that's become, that's probably something I first read in high school when I was, when I was on a big sci-fi kick, I mean, the first time. And uh, it kind of struck me as maybe back then just being kind of clever, but didn't really know what it, what it meant. But I think, you know, I think at that age, I was just looking for things that seemed smart. And every few years, I, I like I revisit that book and that quote always, uh, always comes up. It seems smarter and smarter. It seems like there's real wisdom there. It seems like it's so easy to waste your life, you know, chasing answers to questions that don't really need, <laughs> don't really need to be asked to their own questions, uh, kind of. Kind of sums up a lot of a lot of my life, I think. Uh, well, and, and it seems to me, I mean, just just reading the background story to your life is that quite often you found answers at precisely the same point in time where you've asked a different question. So you know whether that's sort of becoming a a sort of Silicon Valley insider and then deciding actually the Valley is not the place to be. You know, not wanting to do video conference meetings and then suddenly creating a a video conference business through to you know lots of lots of sort of forks in the road and changes, which I guess started right back at the time where growing up as, as a youngster in the USSR and coming to America. Should we start there? Sure. Tell us about it. Well, I was, I was born at a very young age in uh, what used to be called Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. That was in uh, 1972 and had a pretty uneventful childhood in, in the Soviet Union. I was eight when my family left as refugees to come to the, to come to the U.S., you know, I have lots of, uh, I went to first grade, I have lots of early childhood memories of, you know, wearing school uniforms and uh, having, you know, pictures of, of, of Vladimir Lenin on the walls of, uh, of the school rooms and that kind of stuff. But it was, I think, you know, pretty, pretty nondescript for the most part. And then I got to the US, we got to New York. And I just remember being amazed by, you know, all the stereotypical thing that, you know, immigrants from the former Soviet Union are supposed to be amazed by, you know, the amount of food in the, the supermarkets and, you know, different kinds of cars and, you know, food entirely meant for cats. I mean, who would have thunk it? Who would make who would make specialty food for cats? It was it was unthinkable. But uh, yeah, made made quite an impression on me. Has, has that impression lasted? I mean, does it has it shaped has it shaped the the elder Phil? Yeah, I'm sure it has. And I, I think in many ways, I think uh, just this kind of realization that you know, even though I was only eight at the time, you know, I still I think everyone thinks that they're 
you know, they figured some stuff out. So I probably figured I, you know, that I'd known some stuff by eight and just the realization that all of a sudden, you know, everything I, I grew up with turned out to be uh, pretty wrong in, 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 you know, in pretty easily falsifiable ways was, was, was quite an impression. And, and I think I, I just got very lucky because for the most part, almost everything was better in, in, in the new life in the U.S., even though, mm. you know, we didn't really have any money and, 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 and um, you know, my parents were, had to, had to really struggle to make ends meet, but I was shielded from most of that. I didn't really, didn't really appreciate that, I don't think. And so I had this experience where everything changed radically. Everything that I thought about before turned out to be wrong. And it was amazing. Mm. And that probably gave me my, that first taste of, you know, learning to like being wrong, which I think is a, is kind of a neat thing. I'm kind of glad that I've, I've cultivated a taste for, uh, for being wrong and being proven wrong and kind of learning to like so, it. So it's not, it, skill. it started there because it does seem to be that there have been some, some important forks in the road, which have led to very different conclusions, more of that later, but let's sticking with, with the childhood for, for a while. Um, you, you soon found a love for technology. I read a, a BBC interview where you described yourself as a complete computer nerd, spending most of your time inside. At what point did that sudden love of technology awaken? Was, was there a moment? Was it a movie? Was it a moment? Was it something that actually was a kind of an awakening? Well, I was growing up, uh, you know, in the early 80s in, in the Bronx in New York and pretty rough neighborhood. And the, and, and the gangs wouldn't have me. They just they just would not associate with me. So I basically had no choice but to you know stay stuck inside all day. And, you know, I, I begged my parents to get me a, an, an early computer, an Atari uh, 400, which uh, which they cobbled together some money and, and, and they got me. And it was just the best thing ever. So, yeah, for the for the next uh, for the next many years, I, uh, I basically stayed inside in my apartment in the Bronx, you know, hacking around on this computer while while all the cool stuff unfolded, you know, right outside my window. Um, but very quickly, that that cool stuff started to be tech. And it, I mean, I, I interviewed Jimmy Wales, the, uh, the Wikipedia founder, and you know, he he spoke about the effect of things like science fiction and and actually the idea of tech suddenly hitting the big screen as being an important influence on his mindset. I mean, were you a Trekkie? Were you a, were you a Star Wars fan? I mean, were those the sort of things that actually helped you along the way in terms of the brave new world that you might be in the process of helping to create? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I learned, I remember I learned English by watching TV and uh, reading comic books. I had this old copy of a, of a Marvel Thor comic book. That was like my first thing in English. And I was old enough where I remember at some point staring at it and, you know, it was just hieroglyphics. Like it didn't make any sense. It couldn't make out any of the words. And then I, I kind of remember over the next several months, like the words coming into focus and all of a sudden understanding what they meant. And that was from, yeah, from TV shows, from, you know, Star Trek reruns, from sitcom called What's Happening, from comic books. And so I think, um, yeah, I got into this at a super, super young age, was a, was a, am still a very big Star Wars fan and Star Trek fan. Although, you know, I've, everyone knows technically Star Wars isn't actually science fiction. Uh, well, Star it's Trek, not science, right? well, funny, I mean, I, I interviewed Yanis Varoufakis, the, the, the Greek economist, and he's a massive Star Trek fan and actually explains his own ideal of communism through the metaphor of Gene Rodenbury. But I mean, that's for another interview, I'm sure, Phil, because I mean, I suppose, whereas he's chose communism, you chose capitalism. And of course, I suppose the idea of science fiction as science hero in those movies, I mean, do, do you think that that had an early an early role model effect in terms of the things you were reading in terms of the choices you might go on to make? 
Well, Star Trek in particular, I think, was a very lucky thing to, to get started on because it was one of the very few pieces of, of science fiction that's that's inherently positive. You know, most sci-fi is, 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 you know, tends pretty dystopian for, you know, all sorts of good reasons. But Star Trek was was, was fundamentally optimistic. It's a, you know, it's a world building sci-fi. It imagines a an internally consistent world that's for the most part really positive, which is which is pretty rare. And of course, I didn't realize that at the time. Uh, I don't think most people, you know, realize it. But 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 that's really important. I think it... it um, I think I grew up with Star Trek and it kind of gave me the idea that technology could very well be a force for good. And then, in fact, the world could be made much better and will be made much better. And there's a reason to be to be optimistic, but it's not a Pollyannish kind of optimism. It's an optimism that you have to that you have to work towards. And uh, there's not there's not that much, you know, positive, compelling science fiction. So I think it's it's a pretty rare thing. Mm. I mean, in terms of of that optimism, I mean, it seems to be have been a, a fellow traveler through a lot of what you've done with your career. And of course, one of that one of the things about that career has been to get on the move with things. And of course, you went from east to west, from Leningrad to the Bronx. But of course, you then took the next big step, which was to move into the heart of the global technology village in terms of your journey to the valley. Tell us a little bit about those early days and the impression that that made upon you in terms of what might happen next. Well, I went to college in in Boston. So I moved from New York to Boston and uh, stayed there for, for a while. I think it was there for about 18 years. And I, I started my first two startups uh, there with, with college friends of mine as, as, as co-founders. We never, I never really intended to, like I never really thought of being an entrepreneur as, as a thing. I always felt like uh, you know, I should be an engineer or something or earlier on, you know, maybe a lawyer or a doctor, but none of those things were just working out. I was having, a, I think, a difficult time actually staying, you know, gainfully employed. And so uh, starting things just kind of felt like like failing, but, you know, it worked out okay. And uh, made two companies in, in, in Boston that were, you know, medium, medium successful. And then just wanted to to try the next thing in Silicon Valley. I just read so much about it. I remember reading, uh, you know, Guy Kawasaki and, and and authors like that about Silicon Valley, and really kind of buying into the into the myth quite quite enthusiastically. And I thought, well, you know, for for, for our third company, we should try something consumer based. We kind of got tired of building things for for other people. You know, our first companies were very uh, kind of enterprise focused. They were the products were not all that exciting to me as a person. I thought, all right, let's let's try to build something for us. Let's try to make something consumer focused. Focused, then let's do that in what's allegedly the, the heart of the world for that, which was at the time Silicon Valley. So uh, move there forever now. Well, we will get on to Evernet in a moment. In terms of in terms of the impression that it actually made on you when you got there, I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of people, you know, especially technologists over the years, that there's that kind of, you know, there there are two things. There's there's the Valley and Nasdaq as these kind of like moments of we've arrived. I mean, did did you get that sense at that moment? I mean. Was that the kind of the sense of something different's happening here? I found my home, or, or or did you have some early suspicions? Well, you know, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I I've never been particularly motivated by 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 money, by the financial aspect of you know of any of this. So I think I, I think I was kind of blind to some of that. Uh, I did feel interesting. You said you know home. I did feel at home for for maybe the first time in my life uh, when I got to to Silicon Valley. It felt you know I'd been in in Russia and then in New York and then in Boston for you know decades, and I never really felt like I was, you know, like I belonged. And then pretty much within a couple of months of getting to Silicon Valley, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is my place. I think mostly because people just didn't care where, you know, where you were from. Uh, and, and and almost no one was from there. Everyone kind of got there. And I think the, the vibe back at the time, this was been in uh, 2007, 
was, well, you know, you had the good sense to move here, so you're from here. So I definitely mm-hmm. felt a, a kinship that I hadn't felt before. But it was, uh, you know, it was tough. No one knew who I was or who we were. And, you know, previous successes in Boston don't really count in, in Silicon Valley. We had a very hard time, uh, early days of Evernote, you know, getting investment, doing all of that, almost went out of business, you know, many times. But I quite liked the culture and uh, I was happy that that we did it. And, you know, things, I think things stayed mostly positive for a long time. It's easy to, it's easy to be blind to the problems of Silicon Valley when, you know, when, you, when, when you're you in it. And when you're winning, I guess. You mentioned, Phil, about your role as as an investor and a backer of, of ideas. Yeah, you came up with the idea of the startup studio with, with all turtles and modeled that on the idea of, of, of the Hollywood studio. T- tell us more. Well, I, I certainly didn't invent the idea of a product studio. I'm sure those, those have been around for a while. But what we try to do at All Turtles is make worthwhile products without having this fetish on making a small company. I think a lot of what's wrong with Silicon Valley is there's a fetishization of startups. And like the world doesn't need more startups. The world needs more virtuous, worthwhile products. And if, if and we want to make those products first, and then if if the best thing for that product is to be encapsulated in a, in a startup, then that's great. We can make the startup like we did with Mm-hmm, but, but we don't have to. We can also just sell it as a, as a product. And yeah, the model was very much after the new Hollywood studio model, like Netflix, where if you look at Hollywood, you know, a few decades ago, it's a pretty poor business model. Like the economic outcomes are pretty poor. Most of the studios kept going bankrupt every few decades. It wasn't very creative. It was really geographically concentrated. Like most of the world would just watch stuff made within like 50 miles around Hollywood. It was very balkanized. And then Netflix came along and like professionalized it. They're like, yeah, yeah, there's nothing specifically magic about the people here. We're going to do this professionally. And now, you know, I'm binge watching Korean zombie shows, Kingdom, I, I, one of the best, best I, television ever. I call it Game of Hats. And it's great. And so like worldwide, there's amazing creativity, amazing business models. And we're just basically trying to do to tech what Netflix did for for Hollywood. Evernote was the business that I think, you know, in many ways brought you to global global awareness around around the world, something that was being used on smartphones everywhere. Tell us about what it's like to be at the helm of a true unicorn, a business that is is seen as the highest of high potential. What, what, What were the pressures on you in terms of running that? Did you enjoy it? No. <laughs> That's a good answer. Uh, yeah. Why not? I'm not really. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, yeah, I loved it. And in, in, in some sense, it was very fulfilling. Uh, and, and the best part was just being in the team. The team I love you, but I hate you. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not really wired for, for enjoying things. I think that would have been my answer for just about everything. It's interesting. Like, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm very optimistic. I think you've, you've, you've kind of picked up on this kind of long term. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really an optimist. But I'm actually not very happy. Like, I'm pretty mopey. Like, I'm personally quite, you know, mopey and melancholy. And I tend to, you know, not really enjoy things all that much. I just think that the world, you know, has a great, you know, infinite space to be to be improved and to be repaired. And 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 I feel like I have a significant amount of agency to do it. So that's very gratifying. But it's not the same as being like a sunny, you know, person that walks through life. So, that, so that's stuff. interesting. So, so macro positive, micro maybe not so much. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm quite, you know, mopey for lack of a better word uh, at times. And uh, you know, and, and that and that gets worse with stress. And obviously, running running a fast growth company is stressful. Doing anything in a fast growth company is stressful. Not only like there's nothing particularly magical about being the CEO. I mean, most people on the team are, are highly, uh, you know, highly stressed out and working very long hours and. You know, in some sense, being the CEO is, you know, 
in some sense, it's the hardest job, but in many more important senses, it's maybe the easiest job. So uh, there's nothing special about what I went through. Do you know, it reminds me, Phil, as, you, as you're speaking of that saying that, you know, we rarely are as others see us. I mean, you know, everybody I've been talking to in the run up to this, this interview will, will talk about he's he's such a positive guy i mean you know tim ferris who, who interviewed you as i said in the introduction he describes you as hilarious amazing amazing that i would imagine makes you feel a bit uncomfortable does it well michael i'm, I'm pretty impressive about 45 minutes at a time so for the first 45 minutes it's it's, it's easy i think towards the end of this interview you'll start picking up that oh maybe not so much amazing. Oh, we'll, we'll be well done by the end of oh, there we go minutes, phil so yeah. you'll, you'll still be sounding fantastic but that's right but 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 obviously you know it, it at that point, you were running a, a business that, that had a very strong trajectory. You're now running another business that seems to have a, a very strong trajectory, but one that seems to be have some contradictions, tensions, perhaps with the fill of Evernote, with, with the fill of today. I mean, one of those is... I mean, let's talk about mm-hmm, right. I mean, let, let introduce that to us as 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 the idea. Um, tell us a bit about the business. You know, after Evernote, I I, I thought I would kind of semi-retire, so I became a, a VC, a, a, an investor for a couple of years, but then just realized I wasn't particularly good at it. Wanted to build something, so we started uh, All Turtles, which is a product studio. In March of of 2020, we you know we the pandemic started and we all we all went fully distributed. We started working from home. And for the first couple of months of that, it wasn't very boring because, uh, you know, it was terrifying. We were all kind of scared about, you know, dying. But a couple of months into it, by May, like the the everyday terror had pretty much subsided. And what was left was everything was just kind of dull and dreary. And so we just started goofing around. We were just kidding. We, we started... Uh, you know, doing goofy things on video because we were all just on sitting on Zoom calls uh, the entire time just to try to make people laugh a little bit. And so uh, made this thing called mm-hmm, which uh, basically just lets you be engaging on video. You know, I had fun with it, never really intended to take it seriously, but everyone that we showed it to like wanted to use it, wanted to make it into a real product. And so it kind of snowballed from started as a joke and snowballed from there. Well, so, so I was going to say, tell us about the, about the name. I mean, in, in terms of what gets you to... Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, like I said, it started as a joke. So we weren't, we weren't entirely serious about any aspect of it, including the name. But mm-hmm, the idea is it's uh, something that everyone says without thinking, right? So it's very easy to say when you're not thinking about it, just in conversation, you're kind of agreeing with someone, you go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you're trying to say it intentionally, like as the name of the product, like even I have to sort of pause for a second because I have to decide like which syllable am I going to inflect? How am I going to say it? And so it's sort of impossible to say the name intentionally in a mindless way. It's almost like every time you say it, you have to you have to perform it. It's like a little micro performance. And since the product is for helping you perform better, you know, on video, we thought it was pretty elegant to like get you in the mind space just by just by saying the name of the product, you're already like performing. And then maybe well, you well, I was go on say, to other it, things. Because it reminds me of, of a good, I mean, you say it was a joke. It reminds me of a good joke from a comedian, a guy over in the UK called Bob Monkhouse. He said, you know, I told... I told them I'd be a comedian that they're not laughing now. I mean, you know, people people aren't <laughs> laughing about them. I mean, you know, this is now seen as a business that might well be part of some of these bigger questions to some of the bigger existential questions about how are we going to work? How are we going to live? I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're living in Arkansas, not the Valley anymore. I mean, the idea about the mobile life, I mean, you're now part of a business that might well have some of some very big, serious answers to, to, to some of these questions. Yeah, or at least, you know, at least maybe pose the right questions, kind of going back to, you know, the right answer to the wrong question. Say, being and this might, but this might be the right question, because, I mean, I'm presuming that when 
when you hear somebody like, you know, James Gorman, who's Morgan Stanley's CEO, who said, if you can go into a restaurant in New York City, you can come into this office. If you want to get paid New York rates, you work in New York. None of this, I'm in Colorado getting paid like this, like I'm sitting in New York City. That doesn't work. I mean, presumably that's the antithesis of what you're about these days, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I love that. I love that quote because it's highly delusional. And just, just to say to, to his employees, we absolutely are paying New York rates and San Francisco rates, regardless of where you live, because we don't care where you live. That's kind of your responsibility. And obviously you could be ridiculously more productive if you're not commuting to the office. Like it is, it's delusional to pretend that people that don't have to come into the office, you know, knowledge workers, obviously some people do, but you know, knowledge workers, you're forcing them to sit in traffic and to congregate in the same place. It's asinine. Obviously, you get superpowers by not doing it. Obviously, companies are going to go in this direction. Obviously, not everyone. There's going to be companies that insist, get off my lawn, come back into the office. And yeah, that's fine. There'll be new challenger brands and the best people will, will go elsewhere, which is already happening. So yeah, this is, this is a, a profound foundational shift. Like What we started as a joke when we actually thought about it, I think turned into maybe the most profound question in the transformation of the world in my lifetime. Like This challenges all of our assumptions over the past hundred years about, about capitalism, about society, about how we structure work and life, about just about everything. And we're, we're right in the middle of, of, of uh, having a seat at the table and deciding what the new world looks like. And, and when you hear, I mean, we hear a whole list of things about what tech can't do. You know, Zoom, mm-hmm. a Zoom call can never replace a, a human interaction. Uh, you know, a machine will never think, whatever it might be. We're always sure, talking about, sure. what, about, about the can'ts. Yep. When, when you look at, at the cans, I mean, you know, what turned you from being a cynic about things like Zoom calls and video conferences into actually saying, actually, this might well be the future? Yeah, I think I think it was asking it was asking the right question, which uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, the question I was asking was the wrong one, which is how do we get back to, you know, how do, how do we get back to what we used well, to have? And then, of course, I realized, well, that's stupid because it's not like what we used to have was particularly amazing. It shouldn't be about going back to the way things were. It should be going forward to the way things ought to be. Mm-hmm. And so when I asked, like, well, how, how ought to things be? Man, that's that that's a much easier, that's much more important and a much easier question uh, and much easier to work towards. So being, you know, being fully distributed gives you superpowers as a company and as, as, a, as a CEO and as a person that I am never going to give up because they are amazing. And so focusing on the focusing on the difficulties, focusing on what's harder being distributed is not very interesting. Like those are problems that you can solve. It's much more interesting to focus on what can you do? What are unique superpowers that you could never do if you're forcing your, your poor employees to trudge into the office every day? Mm. What are the things, what are the superpowers that you have that are so transformational that no one's ever going to give them up willingly? And then that, that, that makes it clear about why the problems are worth solving, and then you go and solve them. But is it, do you think, a social struggle or a technological struggle that we're facing at the moment? Because it strikes me that a lot of the debate going into the pandemic was about why we can't do these things. You know, financial services are working in highly complex, secure environments. You can't do that from home. But it turns out when you need to, you can do precisely <laughs> that. It, you know, that actually, it turns out they're so, so secure in their offices. It, it, you know, yeah, yeah but, but a lot of things are, you know, I guess the hurdles that are being are being put in the way. And, and I guess with it, a lot of anxiety that people want to change. They want to do things differently. How confident are you that that can be done? How can I mean, how- 100%. There's no, there's no question. Uh, and again, all you have to do is think about, think about the advantages. Like put aside the disadvantages for, for a second. Like the human brain has this very strong negativity bias. So whenever you think about the good and the bad together, and you try to take the pros and the cons, whenever you engage in that, 
you're only ever thinking about the negatives because like your lizard brain, your amygdala kicks in, which is a much stronger part of your brain. For the most part, I'm speaking partially metaphorically. And whenever you're trying to say, well, here's the good, here's the bad, the vast majority of people will vastly over-index on the bad. And the more people you have making a decision, the worse that, that bias gets because you sound smarter when you're being critical and negative about something. If there's like 10 people and you go around the table asking for advantages, disadvantages, you're going to get 99% disadvantages because no one wants to be the dopey you know, American kind of going like, no, no, I think this is great. Everyone wants to show how sophisticated and smart they are by pointing out the problems. And the problems are fine. They're fine. They're real. They're problems. That's fine. You can solve them once you know why you're solving them. Focusing on the problems is trivially easy because every halfway intelligent person can see what the problems are. Focusing on the superpowers and the advantages actually requires some creative imagination and some, some rigorous optimism. That's not a skill that, that as many people have. And the advantages of distributed life are so groundbreaking. Well, I was going to say, so, so tell us about that, because, you know, in terms of where your imagine, imagination takes us, in terms yep. of what, what we really are playing for, mm -hmm. what should people be thinking about in terms of the what comes next? Well, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you three very quick superpowers of being fully distributed uh, for companies and, and people that could do it that are never going to give up. These aren't even the biggest ones, but they're pretty big. So the first one is 0% of, of the people that work in my companies waste time commuting. 0%, no one. Uh, on average, it's like two hours a day, I think, for, for like knowledge workers, spend time commuting. Nobody does it. So imagine if like somehow, you know, like Harry Potter style, magic, magic, magic. And like we go back in time and somehow like no one ever spent time commuting. We just that's the way it's always been. And I go into the office. You know, this is alternate Earth. I go into the office tomorrow and I'm like, OK, gather around, everyone. I've got a new CEO idea. I'm going to need each of you to waste two hours every day sitting in traffic. Yes, it's not very productive. And yes, you can't get any work done. And yes, you're not home with your family. And yes, you can't see your friends. And yes, it's pretty stressful. And yes, it's pretty bad for your health. And oh my God, yes, it's terrible for the environment. But new strategic initiative, two hours, every single person sit in traffic, go. Mm. Right? Like but that's, in, that's crazy. I would get fired. Board would be like, yeah, CEO's gone crazy. I'd be out. That's what we're asking people to do. So if, 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 you're, if, if someone doesn't have to do that and you're asking them to do it, that's stupid. That's a massive advantage. Now, does not coming into the office make a few things harder? Of course it does, but those are minor and can be solved. Like, but a second thing, which is even bigger, just 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 one more, which is even bigger, is this. Uh, you've interviewed a bunch of like much more impressive people than me. You've interviewed a bunch of you know CEOs. And I guarantee that when you ask, hey, what's the hardest part about your company? I guarantee you've only ever gotten one answer because I probably shouldn't you know, spill these trade secrets. But when you go to CEO school, they teach you that whenever somebody asks you, what's the hardest part about your company? There's only one answer that we as CEOs are legally allowed to give, which is it's the people. It's hiring, it's talent. A hundred percent, you've asked that question. That's the only answer you've ever gotten, right? It's the people. And it's true. Like recruiting is actually pretty difficult. Keeping talent mm. is pretty difficult. And so here we, here we go. Like we as CEOs have just spent the past 50 years whining about how recruiting is the hardest part. We've just been given the world's greatest superpower for recruiting, which is you can recruit people from everywhere in the world, everywhere where they live and they don't have to move. 100% of my job listings now say global. I will never again put a geographic description on a knowledge worker, you know, a, a geographic restriction on a knowledge worker job description. This is by far the best way to hire people. And I'm going to give that up. I've just been whining for 40 years about how hiring people is the hardest part. Well, look, of course, I, we're not going to give that up. I mean, I sort of feel like, you know, I've just sort of met Alec Guinness and, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for. I mean, in terms of, 
in terms of these are not the droids you're looking for, I mean, it, it, you know, a lot of people would say, just clicking out of it, well, yeah, okay, right, this is what you would expect from a tech evangelist. The brave new world is we're all sat in, you know, you know, instead of work cubicles, we're all sat at home. We no longer come together as a community. No, 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 but disaggregated. How, yeah. well, how do you get the balance right? How do you get the sense of community? There's, there's sort of the, I guess, the, the human aspects that mm-hmm. I suppose historically offices and places of work, the water cooler, whatever. How do you make sure that the balance isn't lost in terms of the the onward push of tech? That is a great question. And in fact, I think it's the only slightly better way of asking it is not how do you make sure the balance isn't lost? You got to say, how do you make sure the balance is found? Because it's not like we had balance before. It's not like anyone before COVID was like, oh my God, amazing work-life balance. I'm so happy. You know what's doing it for me is the two hours commuting. Like that, no one ever said that. So it's not like we had balance before, but 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 the right question is how do we get balance now? And and it's amazing. Like I'm not saying work from home. Being distributed doesn't mean work from home. I don't work from home. I mean, I work from home sometimes. I'm at home now. I'm basically working from home roughly a third of the time. The other third of the time I work from a museum, which is kind of amazing. In fact, it begs the question, why aren't you working from a museum? Because working from a museum is pretty amazing, right? There's like, there's a lot of beautiful spaces. You can sit, you can work. If you have a creative challenge, if you have a creative challenge that you want to talk through with somebody else, walking through like a beautiful museum. I'm, I've got this thing called Crystal Bridges, which is one of the greatest museums in the world, like right in my backyard here in, in Arkansas. So I work for museums. I work from a, from a club, which has an amazing lounge and a really great pool and the gym. So I work from the pool, meaning like I can go swim a few laps in between Zoom calls. And there's plenty of adults around. So I'm not, I'm not like isolated. I'm not working from home. I was during the COVID lockdown. Yeah, that sucked. Of course, mm-hmm. that's worse, but that's not the case anymore. Or, and hopefully within a few months, it won't be the case for anyone. You can work from wherever you need to work. And of course you can be around other people, which I am all the time. It's actually pretty amazing. I, 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 when I work from the club, it's around other you know, professional adults and it's not a co-working space. It's just, but there's, you know, there's plenty of people there. And so I can, I can chat with people. I can get you know, mentorship and they're not my employees. I mean, most of them are, which is amazing because it's actually quite fatiguing being in a, in, in a space where everyone works together uh, on the same, like on the same team. Uh, and, and it's not that we don't see the, our team members. We do see our team members. We get people together in, in, in small groups. We get the entire company together. We're going to start getting the entire company together twice a year in like a corporate vacation. We see, we get different teams to get together every couple of weeks, every couple of months. So I, I not like isolated, it. see the people, but it's still fully distributed and it still keeps the, the superpowers. So I remember interviewing a guy, very, very bright guy, and he talked about the Valley Vice. And he said mm-hmm. the, the Valley Vice is when very smart people see solutions and they start to remove people from the equation. And what he yeah. talked about was Hilton's decision to take away the meet and greet, the bell, the bellboy, the bell, so the, the, the idea. That, and, and what they did was they got rid of the revolving door and they brought an electric door. Mm-hmm. And then people said at the end, it's soulless because we don't see any people there and they lost the magic yeah. that they had. My question is that in a, in a, a vision that you've, pla- you, you've, you've painted here, which, which feels really attractive and interesting to listen to, how far can it go? Who loses out? How far can you democratize that so that everybody gets a piece of that life, a piece of that action? I spent a lot of my time in Boston, uh, you know, about 18 years. And in Boston, which you know, I guess most of, your, most of your listeners probably don't know, but uh, a lot of cities have this or had this, especially in the U.S. There was this giant, ugly, 
overpass highway that ran through the middle of, of, of the city. Lots of cities had this. They were building them in the early 20th century as progress. And these things are terrible. And they basically like divide the neighborhoods they run through. They isolate everything. They push everything out to the periphery. They ruin community. They ruin neighborhoods. And Boston finally got rid of this thing. They got rid of this underpass. They built a giant tunnel and it revolutionized the city. Like Boston right now is so much nicer than it was when I was there, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, because partially there's not this giant overpass that's running directly through the middle of life in the city. And, and they were able to reintegrate the neighborhoods. Well, like, and, and lots of cities are going through this, like new urban design is very careful not to have this. The office is like that metaphorically for your life. Going to the office every day is this giant, monstrous, monolithic thing that we've put that runs directly through the center of your life that, that, that got put there in the you know first half of the 20th century that pushes out everything else. Because like you have to wake up two hours earlier than you want to so that you can sit in traffic for two hours, so that you can be in the same physical place with a bunch of other people who don't really want to be there for 10 hours, so that you can spend another two hours going back home, maybe just in time to tuck your children to bed, which is not the ideal time to spend time with your kids. It's the one or two minutes before they lose consciousness. You've got this giant monolithic monstrosity running through the center of your life, and it pushes out everything else into late night or weekend. It pushes out art and family and community and music completely like completely inhumanely because it mm. dominates this like commuting to the office and being in the same physical space dominates our life to the point where we don't question it. And as soon as you get rid of it, as soon as you get rid of this idea that I have a monolithic 14 hours in the middle of my day that I have to spend at a particular place, I don't have that anymore. I can spend a few hours here, a few hours there. I can go for a swim. I can go to see an art museum. I can listen to music. I can see my friends. I can see my family. I don't have kids, but if I did, I could spend time with my kids when they were still conscious. It integrates, it reintegrates life back so, into the middle of your day, which is amazing. And, and that can apply to just about everyone. Now, obviously, you know, not everyone can have a distributed job. Like when I'm in, I'm in Arkansas right now in Bentonville, you know, the people who work in the retail stores, those aren't distributed jobs. Like they're showing up at the store, they're showing up at the restaurant. But the big advantage is because the society here is built like this, all of those people live near in the community. You know, none of the waiters in the restaurants are commuting for two hours to get there. They're all kind of walking to work or they're living a 10 minute commute. Like my immediate next door neighbor right now, the guy who owns the house directly across the street from me, is a waiter at the neighborhood pizza place. It's been mm. for like 15 years. All of that is like what's pointing at a more humane future that's possible if you can have this larger economic base of distributed knowledge workers spreading out, um, uh, including with far more community engagement. So what I'm wondering, and and you know, and I suppose it's you know, as, as a last question and a last last thought is that surrounding everything that you're you're saying is, you know, huge debates of our time, you know, both case making for and against many of the things that you're talking to. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder if for you, part of the part of the, the the definite, you know, fill the case maker, the kind of that that change maker is because you are at a point in your life where you've got a sense of the right question and the right answer at the right time. I mean, is that part of where you think you're at at the moment? Yeah. And, and it's because of that and not because of money. And that's, and that's kind of amazing. So the, the, the lifestyle that I have right now, like literally like the house I live in, the pool where I go swimming at the club and the working at the museum and all everything that I do right now has nothing to do with me having more money than like the average employee. That wasn't the case when I lived in San Francisco. When I lived in San Francisco, you know, I had a, in general, I think pretty poor standard of living compared to, you know, now, but far better than average. But it was because I was, I was able to spend significantly more money than most people there on, you know, paying rent and that kind of stuff. Now, 
everything in my, this is the greatest work-life situation I've ever had is right now. And it's attainable to every single person who works at any of our companies, because I'm in a place that's, you know, far less expensive. We pay people the same wages, regardless of whether they're living in San Francisco or Arkansas or anything else. When I moved, I didn't feel like giving myself a pay cut. And I'm certainly not going to ask anyone else to take a pay cut, you know, when they move. And everything is like a fifth of the price that it used to be. So I've actually got the best work-life balance I've ever had, not because I've got money, but because I've like asked that question of like, well, where, where can I have the best life? And again, no kids, but if I did, there's good school districts, it's safe, there's like all, all, all sorts of things like that. So I think like our, our, our motto, our philosophy for distributed work is uh, people should work where they can have the best job and they should live where they can have the best life. Mm. And for the first time in the history of the universe, hundreds of millions of people worldwide can, can ask those two questions independently. Where can I have the best job? And where can I have the best life? And they're not tied together. That's never happened to me before. It's never happened to the vast majority of people. And, and now it's happening a bunch. And those are profound questions. I think what a brilliant summary. And I guess vision for that future of the road that is not less travel, but the road that more people can travel upon. And thank you so much, Phil, for joining me on Changemakers. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Michael. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?